He's risen. Thank God. Amen. So again, happy, happy Easter. One of the dreams of companies is to come up with a logo that will associate a product to people that has heart appeal. And they want a logo that when people see it, they not only think about the company, but they want to buy whatever that company sells. So what company does this logo make you think of? Nike. In fact, there's a word for that logo. Anybody know what it's called? Swoosh. It's the sign of victory. It's the sign of a winner. And people are willing to pay millions of dollars. I'm, I'm no, almost. People are willing to pay a lot of money for a shirt or shoes because it's got a swoosh on it. It's one of the most compelling logos of our day. And Tiger Woods just helped make more money for, for, uh, for Nike. He did. I, I, I'm pull, I was pulling for Tiger. I was happy to see him win. That, that shows the power of persistence and consistency and the possibility of a comeback. Some of you need to hear that today, too. It ain't over, you know, till it's over. So you stay with it. Be persistent, consistent, and anything's possible. Look at this. What are these uh, golden arches? What does that mean to you? McDonald's. You deserve a break today. Now, that logo says this is a sign of abundance. This is the home at a happy meal, the meal of great joy. And when little kids see that logo, their hearts beat really, really fast. If I could just have one of those happy meals, I'd be happy. And they're usually happy for about a minute. And of course, the only person really happy that billions of happy meals are sold is Ronald McDonald. He's really happy. But we see that logo, the sign of abundance, and our hearts beat a little faster because we know you can get a wonderful, delicious, fatty, artery-clogging food there. You can get it cheap, and you can get it fast. And you can get it in a drive through so your whole family can eat in the van the way God intended families to do dinner. Okay, one more. Now, no, that's not a peace symbol or a hippie sign. Think cars. Janis Joplin once sang a song about him in the form of a prayer. Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all have one. I must make amends. The sign of status. Mercedes had an ad a few years ago that said, you can't buy happiness, but now you can lease it. <laughs> logos. We live in a world of logos. And people are paid millions of dollars to think these things up and figure out ways to make them clear and compelling so that when you see it, you think, I want to be associated with what that logo stands for. And for over 2,000 years, the clearest, most remembered, most widely recognized logo of what the Christian faith stands for is two pieces of wood stuck together on which criminals are executed. An instrument of death is our corporate logo. And if you're a follower of Jesus, this is the logo on which you have built your life. But nobody chooses a logo like this in our day. I mean, how likely is it that our local power company will choose as its logo an electric chair with the slogan, the power's on? <laughs> it ain't going to happen. 
I've got a concern that in our world, crosses have become so common, so trite, you can pick one up almost in any store. We see them all the time and we forget the shock. We forget what it really stood for. It wasn't the sign for a winner. It was the sign of death. It wasn't a sign of abundance. It was the sign of ultimate loss. It's not a sign of status either, folks. It's the ultimate expression of humiliation. You know, it's a profound ministry, I think, that the God of the universe, who holds all power, all might, all wealth, would choose as His essential expression of His heart and love for mankind a cross. And just for a couple of minutes, I want us all to be clear as to why the cross stands at the center of the Christian faith. I want us to understand the pain of the cross, what Christ suffered. I want us to understand the power of the cross, the difference it can make in the life of this world, in my life and yours. And I'd like for us to understand what it means to be people of the cross. What is it that Jesus invites all of his followers to do? So let me give you a little history of crucifixion. Uh, Maybe you can understand better the context of the cross. The Romans were good at executions, and boy, they did a lot of them. They could do it quick or slow, private or public. They could burn you, stone you, use a sword, but crucifixion was the worst. It required four soldiers and a centurion to oversee it. It took hours, sometimes a couple of days. It was time-consuming, and it cost a lot of money. The Romans used crucifixion when they wanted to do two things. For cases, they wanted to maximize pain and stretch out the agony over a long period of time. And two, where they wanted to maximize public humiliation. The man who was condemned would be forced to carry the cross beam on his back. And then there would be a large procession through the heart of the town because Romans wanted to take the longest route through the most crowded areas so more people could see what's going on, kind of increase the humiliation. And the soldiers would walk in front of the condemned man carrying a sign proclaiming the crime of which that condemned man was accused. Their intent was to make the crucifixion a public deal and draw a huge crowd of people who were supposed to taunt, spit at, and humiliate the one on the cross until he died. The idea was to make the condemned man a public spectacle. Now, since the Romans were occupying Israel, they wanted to discourage anybody who had the idea they're going to rebel and maybe gain their freedom and independence. And they felt crucifixion would put so much fear in people, it would shut them up and keep them quiet. Crucifixion was used most often for treason or insurrection. And it was such a wicked, cruel death. If you were a Roman citizen, no matter what crime you committed, you could not be crucified. In most cases, the condemned man, such as Jesus, was first beaten, 39 lashes with straps containing small pieces of metal and bone, which were designed to rip into the flesh and tear it out. It wasn't uncommon for some people, while being beaten, to die because of the loss of blood. And after the beating, the cross beam of that cross would be placed on the back of the condemned person, and they're forced to carry it through town to the place they would be executed. Then the cross would be laid on the ground, and the condemned man would be put on it, and they would drive spikes through the wrist and either put the two feet over each other and drive a spike through them or tie the feet together. By the way, let me pause just for a second. 
I know in stained glass windows and in Sunday school books, almost any time you see the crosses, they're 30 feet high. I, would, I don't know if you've ever stopped to do something church doesn't ever do, think. That wouldn't even be possible. There's no way four Roman soldiers can get a cross up 30 feet in the air. And number two, it wasn't necessary. Number three, you couldn't spit on them, taunt them, or slap them if they're 30 feet in the air. You couldn't reach up to give vinegar, which was mixed with a, a chemical to dull pain. It was, a, it, was a, um, it was a pain killer, a drug. Jesus refused it because he was close. So the Roman soldiers had to pick it up with the condemned man on it and lift it up and put it in the hole. All you had to do was get the feet maybe six inches to a foot off the ground so the weight of the person would start doing the work of creating muscle spasm until finally the person is suffocated because their muscles go into paralysis and now they can't breathe. Secondly, when you look at a cross today, they look like they came out of rooms to go. You know, nice four by four, planed in a wood mill. That didn't exist. They in fact, the King James says he was crucified on a tree. They would cut a tree down, a rough tree, saw it in half, and put a crossbeam on it. It's just bark and the tree, you were on it. There was no pretty cross with all the nice ends varnished like you see. Now, now you can discuss that over lunch, okay? But I just, I used to look at pictures and I thought, this just doesn't add up. And then, of course, Coming from the south, all my Sunday school books had Jesus with blonde hair, blue eyes, and white skin, which was a little anomaly since he came out of a Jewish family in a Middle Eastern culture. I think the dude was brown, had brown eyes, and he had black hair. But it depends on what race you're in as to what your Sunday school book looked like. So now you know. Okay. Now, if the person on the cross pushed up on his feet to inhale, the pain was searing. If he went limp to breathe, the pain was unbearable on the wrist. So you get it. It's a slow, agonizing way to die. And the person was left on the cross for hours exposed to heat or cold, whatever the weather was. And the usual cause of death is suffocation. The muscles are paralyzed, and Jesus experienced that for me and for you. This is what's going on when he looked down from the cross and the people who were taunting him, and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. In Luke 23, he makes that incredible statement. And here's what's interesting. The Gospels actually say very little about Jesus' physical suffering. In Mark's Gospel, it just says, and they crucified him. Pretty simple. But here's the difference between what Jesus went through as the Savior and anybody else on a cross. He was experiencing a form of spiritual suffering that we can't even possibly imagine. So much so, it made his physical suffering almost inconsequential. The Bible says that on the cross, he who knew no sin, who never experienced guilt, never a moment of shame, never a moment of regret, he who knew no sin became sin for our sake. Amazing. Think for a moment about the darkest thing you've ever done. Don't think too long about it, okay? Maybe you betrayed a marital vow. Maybe you went through an abortion. Maybe you got an act of rage going. Somebody was killed. Maybe it was an act of deceit that caused you to lose a job. Maybe it's a pattern of behavior or a habit you'd be ashamed of if other people knew about it. 
And add to that the guilt and pain and shame and regret and destructiveness to the soul of every sin ever committed by every fallen human being who has ever lived on earth. Every murder from the time of Cain and Abel right down to today in into the future, every seduction, every betrayal, and every genocide. And imagine feeling the horror and despair of all that sin on one person. Imagine experiencing seeing the judgment and anger of a holy, righteous God towards all of that sin, all of that directed at you. And picture that Jesus' entire life, he had never experienced anything other than perfect union with his Father throughout all eternity. Jesus had never known a single moment of what it's like to be lonely. He had never known a moment of what it's like to be unloved by his Father. But on the cross, he cried out these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried those out so you and I would never have to say that when we accept him. He would never leave me. He would never forsake me. What would it mean to be completely forsaken by God in this world? Well, in this life, none of us will ever know. Even people who shake their fists to defy God experience good gifts from him every day. He wakes them up every morning. He gives them breath to breathe. On the cross, Jesus experienced the horror of what it would be to be utterly forsaken by God. Complete spiritual darkness, utterly hopelessness, utter forsaken. And that's why he said in the Garden of Gethsemane, my soul is in anguish. I'm sorrowful to the point of death. His sorrow at this point was so great, he sweat blood. That's where we get the expression, he sweat, I'm sweating drops of blood. It came right out of the garden, the stress he was under, and thought he might possibly die before being crucified, which is why the angels came to strengthen him. His physical suffering was nothing compared to that pain. He was mistreated by authorities. He was mocked by crowds of people. He was abandoned, deserted, betrayed by his best friends. But his real suffering was a spiritual suffering that you and I can only dimly imagine. Scripture says on the cross in Galatians 3, he redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. He experienced supernatural suffering and guilt that you and I will never know. So you and I can experience a supernatural healing and forgiveness we could never, ever earn. And that leads us to the second aspect of the cross, the power of the cross. It was very apparent to anybody watching that day that what took place on that cross when Jesus died was an act of extraordinary spiritual power. The Bible says when he hung on the cross, it went so dark you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And the earth shook with a violent earthquake, open tombs of dead people. We're told that when he died, the veil in the temple that covered the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom. A centurion looked up and said, truly, this was the Son of God. And understand the kind of power released in the cross. Remember, when, when he tore that veil, you couldn't get before God. You couldn't come near God. Only the high priest could come once a year under the Jewish law, the Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. And they put a rope around his foot in case God didn't accept his offering for the nation. And they were going to drag him out because nobody was going in or God would kill you. You couldn't approach him. So on that cross, there was the power of forgiveness. Because of that one man, Jesus, on him was laid the collective guilt of the human race. My guilt, your guilt, everybody's guilt. Your sin was on the cross with Jesus, and the Bible says the blood of Jesus cleanses us from every sin. 
When that veil in the temple was ripped open, God was saying, I want you now through Jesus to have full access to me. You can come to me anytime you want now. Because of my son Jesus and his sacrifice, you can live in my presence all the time. Think about that. Nobody had ever been able to approach God. Even in this world, you can't get access to powerful people very often, stars, celebrities, uh, political officials. You usually can't get access to them at all. But the human race living under the curse that they are sinful and that God is holy and that we've been cut off from Him, on the cross, God is saying, hey, that veil is ripped in two. Through my son Jesus, you can now approach my throne, the throne of grace and mercy, and you can come with boldness. Now, I know I've been in some churches where they crawl down the altar. Oh, I'm unworthy, worm is me. Hey, because of Jesus' sacrifice for you, Mr. Worm, you now can come like your children. If you're the corporate CEO of Valero and your little kids or grandkids come to see you, they're not going to get an appointment with a secretary. They're not going to walk in with some formal dignity and protocol and address thee uh, as this great potentate. My grandkids don't run into my office. My children are too big now. They're grown up. They don't run into my office either. But they used to run into my office, and it was always, Daddy, I need 20 bucks. <laughs> they didn't get a, an appointment. They didn't say, Oh, thou my father, who parteth his hair on the left side, who's, who... They, that's, that's not intimacy. Now through Jesus, I'm a son of God. So I can come boldly to the throne to obtain grace. And hey, I like this one, mercy in time of need. And I get to do it boldly. No crawling anymore. The price has been paid. Jesus has made me worthy. So if there's any unworthiness, my kids don't know it. And as a child of God, you need to know it. That was paid for by Jesus in his blood. You, you, you know, when, they, when he ripped that veil, you know what those priests did? They sewed it back up. The enemy hates the fact that you could know you can have access to God without keeping the law and without any record of, let me see your performance chart. Hmm, that doesn't look so good. Uh, acceptable, unacceptable. No, no, that's all been thrown out because the enemy loves to use guilt, shame, and condemnation to torture you. Jesus said in John, and, uh, Corinthians uh, 8, there is no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus, none, because he took my shame, he took my guilt, and he paid for it on the cross, and the enemy does not want me to know that, but I know it, and I'm not going to be hooked into that trap. You ever need wisdom, ever need guidance, ever, ever need encouragement, you ever get discouraged, maybe you need comfort. You ever get lonely? You need a friend? Well, God says, you can come to me now through Jesus anywhere, anytime with no appointment. When I was a kid, we played tag, hide and go seek. And boy, you didn't want to be it because if you got tagged. When the game was over, remember what we'd say? Ollie, ollie in free, meaning there'd be no penalty if you came in. And it's kind of like at the cross, Jesus was saying to the world now, hey, ollie, ollie in free. No guilt, no punishment, forgiveness and mercy and grace. Everybody can come. Everybody can come. Every race, every gender. Even though we are fallen and sin-stained, God said, hey, you can come anytime. Where do we get the power to do that? Through the cross. The cross is also the power of reconciliation. People can be reconciled not just to God, but to each other and to other people. 
Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, knew hatred and racism that existed between Jew and Gentiles. They wouldn't speak to each other. They wouldn't eat with each other. But Paul said that on the cross, Jesus tore the veil of dividing wall of hostility that separated Jew and Gentile, making them one in Christ Jesus. And people who had been bitter enemies could become brothers and sisters. Wow. People redeemed by the blood of the cross are to be reconciled to each other and to God. He recognized different races, African-Americans, whites, Hispanic, Asians, male, female, people of different nationality. No hostility in Christ. The laws can't do that. We can pass laws against bigotry and racism and prejudice, but that don't change my heart. Only God can change my heart. And out of the heart are the issues of life. Laws don't touch my heart. They just make me more sneaky about doing it. But, and hope I don't get caught. Laws can kind of caution me about speeding on 281, <clears throat> but it doesn't always stop me from speeding on 281. I don't yet have a perfectly pure heart to oh, not speed, and I have to pay a ticket. Oh, I'm so sorry. I see halos all over the room in here. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to just be honest. So only the cross, only Jesus could change my heart, make you love somebody that normally you were taught to hate or to distrust or to dislike. Now, then there's victory over evil through the cross. Paul writes in the book of Colossians that when Jesus died, he disarms spiritual powers and authorities opposed to God like Satan, the evil one, and made a public spectacle of all of them. Remember, that's what the people thought they were doing to Jesus, making a public spectacle of him, shaming and humiliating him. And when Jesus died on the cross, he was really showing the ultimate triumph of the self-sacrificing love of God and declaring that any darkness that tried to stand in the way of that would be defeated. Sin and guilt were ultimately defeated on the cross. That's the power of victory over sin. And part of what that means is that you and I don't have to be defeated or in bondage to sin anymore. Oh, it didn't mean I don't sin, but I'm not in bondage to it anymore. You can begin to change. Everybody in this room can change. You can be transformed. You don't have to be trapped or stuck anymore. Why not? The power of the cross transforms the human heart. People say, you're so different. Yeah. That's why for 2,000 years, at the center of the Christian faith stands not a candle, not a star, but a cross. That's why Paul says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. To them, the cross just stands for humiliation and death. And what our culture is after is victory, abundance, status, and power. But the message of the cross is foolishness to them who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. God's primary concern is not that we display the cross. The primary concern is that we live it. The self-giving, self-sacrificing love expressed on the cross manifested through my life. In boardrooms, in classrooms, in living rooms, in every room, you and I become men and women of the cross. Jesus gave some of the most sobering words ever recorded in human history, words that have changed more people and lives than any words ever spoken. He said, if anybody would follow me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. 
So I ask you, have you chosen to be a people of the cross? Or have you just chosen to wear one? See, whatever's in my life that's displeasing or dishonoring to you, Lord, I'll crucify it. Maybe it's lust, maybe pride, maybe deception, maybe resentment, maybe greed. I'm asking you right now, would you nail it to the cross? Would you say to God, whatever it takes, however much it hurts, and it will hurt, kill it. Destroy what's inside me that doesn't please you and resurrect it so I can be the kind of a person you designed me to be. Whatever I need to do, whatever help I need to get, I'm going to take up my cross every day. Will we be known as a people of the cross or a people of wealth, a people of status, a people of a political party, a people of power, a people of pleasure, or a people of comfort? You can find churches for every one of those. See, a lot of you have the kind of resources and abilities and the gifts making it easier for you to go down one of those roads if you wanted to. Or will you have the courage and the character to say, I'm going to be a man or woman of the cross. I will seek to live my life with a self-sacrificing, self-giving love. Oh yeah, I'll mess up sometimes, but tomorrow I'll take up the cross again. And the next day I'll take up the cross again. And as best I can, with God helping me, I will live as a person of the cross until the end of my life comes and I receive fullness of life promised from the one who gave his life on the cross for my sake. I hope you'll make that choice because then you really understand what Easter is about. But remember, there is no Easter without the cross. Will we be a people of the cross? For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.